thank you so much for your interest in this set of podcasts about depth psychotherapy or psychoanalytic psychotherapy or psychodynamic psychotherapy. I apologize for the last one, which had uh, the metronome in the background, which I'm just trying to figure out how to turn off, and I sure hope it's off. I tested it a few times. Uh, let's see, in the way of a very quick review, my uh, goal here is to introduce beginning psychotherapists and um, beginning patients to just the basics of what is meant by depth psychotherapy. I have a particular interest in cross-theoretical models, meaning where uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapists use uh, the more than 100-year history of psychoanalytic theory as a source of metaphors. So rather than approach a patient from the Freudian model, which suggests that people are driven by sexual impulses, really what Freud meant was more like love, connection, attachment, to be fair to him, or by Kleinians who would emphasize envy, greed, kind of the dark side of humanity, or Jungians who are interested in uh, the collective unconscious, which is an excellent idea, and that manifests in things like um, archetypes. Uh, so whatever occurs in your personal unconscious, there's also a collective unconscious beneath it. And my philosophy, which is followed by many people, uh, is that you match the theory to the patient. You use theory in accordance with what's going to be best for the patient. Uh, that way, you're not violating them by cramming them into some preordained system or constricting your own vision, which would be, say, looking for where the attachment struggle is when it may not be about love or attachment at all. The whole course of psychotherapy may be about mourning or loss or uh, living with an illness or disability, etc. So toward that organizing uh, goal, I have suggested that all psychoanalysts, regardless of their theoretical orientation, do three basic things. They uh, frame the relationship, which means just creating a regular appointment time of a certain length with uh, punctual beginning and endings, which is really where you create this crucible or this environment for personal transformation to occur. So that's framing number one of the three. Number two of the three is presence, which is basically bringing attention, curiosity, interest, care, over time, maybe even love to the patient. This is unbelievably powerful. It never ceases to amaze me. As I've said probably more than once now, I've had patients come in and the first couple sessions, maybe they're just weeping about the fact that their boyfriend just left them or that something is reminding them of their father who passed away five years earlier. And simply by listening, listening carefully and being emotionally present, um, you create a form of transformation. And a third, last, arguably most complexly is what I call means of engagement. We are all in conversations with ourselves. We all live within a certain internal drama that we then project into the external world. 
a lot of what competent psychoanalytic psychotherapy is about is disrupting that drama, bringing it to patients' attention in a painful, intense, sometimes joyful way so that they can make alterations in their internal world in correspondence with alterations in their external world. Something I don't think I've mentioned before is when you have a situation which, uh, in honesty, probably only occurs about half the time, where there's a really dramatic transformation in a person. You'll see a change in the way they treat themselves and the way they treat others, and that's in terms of their internal drama. And in parallel to the internal drama, you'll see changes like they, they switch to a different job or they broke up with someone and got into a new relationship. It's really pretty dramatic when it it is it when it works, which takes a lot of you know you have to have good biology, you have to be ready to change, um, you have to have a good relationship with your psychoanalytic psychotherapist, um, and it is through the means of engagement, which includes things like confrontation, interpretation, uh, clarification of feelings, etc., that change occurs. Okay, I'm almost done with the review. Those of you who have been sitting through these podcasts, particularly the one that has the clicks in it. Sorry about that again. Now I'm on part two of defense mechanisms. So this is podcast number eight of 10, which is where, again, the goal is to introduce you to what's meant by DEMP psychotherapy. And uh, this is the second part of me talking about defense mechanisms. The way that relates to framing, presence, and engagement is that everyone has them, defense mechanisms, that is. They're akin to the body's immune system. It's not like successful psychotherapy is eliminating defense mechanisms. What you really are is upgrading them uh, to where um, you're less likely to use splitting and projective identification, which is what I talked about in the last lecture, which was number eight. And this is number nine. I'm afraid I just said eight, but I meant nine, where I'm talking about the so-called more mature uh, ego defense mechanisms. Uh, so as I mentioned last time, it was Anna Freud who extended the work of her father, Sigmund, into uh, describing what these basic defense mechanisms are. Now, according to Anna, uh, who never married and had kind of a strange relationship with her father, he, by the way, analyzed her. Uh, never a good idea to do psychoanalytic psychotherapy with any of your friends, family members, etc., because you just cannot do it. You have no quote-unquote objectivity. Um, so Anna identified uh, five healthy defense mechanisms. As you already know, I don't really like that word health when it comes to the psychological world because how do you define that? It's easy to define what a healthy liver or kidney and equally easy, although I know nothing about it, to understand when your liver enzymes are way up or you're urinating with blood, like it's simple that you have a problem with your kidneys or bladder or uh, liver. But 
how do you define what an effective life is? And that's why I prefer words like maturity or effective living to talk about what you're striving for, or to borrow the phrase of the Greek poet Pindar, whose phrase was kind of stolen by the U.S. Army. Uh, he writes that we should all strive to be all that you become who you are, is the exact phrase, become who you are. So psychoanalytic psychotherapy ideally helps you with that, helps you to live a more authentic life where you're engaged in work or activities that are fulfilling and meaningful to you, and where you're capable of deep, intimate friendships and romantic love. So one of these effective people, I would say, they do tend to use what uh, uh, Anna Freud said were these five most mature defense mechanisms, and I'm going to go with uh, through them one by one. Uh, but first, I want to remind all of you listeners that all the defense mechanisms, what they all have in common are ways of splitting the mind. So one of the five, for example, is humor. Um, and uh, remember when the space shuttle blew up? This pretty much happens with any major life tragedy that is sort of uh, on a national or international level <clears throat> is humans will use dark humor as a way to cope with it. And it kind of makes sense, right? It, it, um, uh, it's another way of splitting uh, the, the, the mind. Uh, I had a stepfather-in-law whose name was Charlie, who died of, uh, of kidney cancer. He had a good death, you know, wasn't too awfully painful. He was well managed once he went on hospice and he had a number of years of life before he passed away. But uh, he sees the same uh, internal medical physician that I do. And once well after the diagnosis was terminal, but he was still in relatively good shape. Um, he had brought a rose with him to uh, uh, one of his medical visits. And her name is Claire, this lovely doctor that I have known for almost 30 years now. And when Claire walked in the room, Charlie was sitting with his arms folded and one hand holding the rose as if he was a dead body. That would be kind of a killer example, no pun intended, of the use of humor as a defense mechanism. So it's black humor or laughing about, oh, yes, I have to have that terrible surgery and I just hope... The surgeon has a good night's sleep the night before, has sex with his wife or her wife the night before, ha, ha, ha. Um, the a, a second one, these are not in any kind of order, is repression. Kind of a long story with repression because there's some technical difficulties with the idea in terms of who is the censor that's repressing things. But nonetheless, according to Anna Freud, it makes the top five. And that is referring to an unconscious process, not a conscious one, where painful information, like that you have an illness, for example, um, is just pushed outside of your conscious awareness. Uh, so repression can be anything from unresolved conflicts with your uh, parents or siblings or spousal units. Um, 
It could be repressing unmet need states that you've suffered with your entire life. Um, I got to come back to my list of five, what I think uh, all traumatized people hurting wounded humans, which we all are, have in common. And that is either something off biological, like an anxiety problem or a propensity towards psychosis, a trauma, developmental delay, unmet need states, or conflict. Now, any of those five things, which are usually in uh, combination, it's very rare to have just one, um, can be subject to repression. And again, nothing wrong with that. Uh, conscious life has a very limited bandwidth to it, and it's not very helpful even if you have a biological propensity toward anxiety, if you're walking around every day just super aware of how much you have a hyper-startle response, a little bit of a tremor, and a tendency to worry, uh, it's obviously much more effective if those are repressed uh, so that you can just go on with life. Now, closely related to repression is suppression, but uh, the, the key technical difference here is that that is a conscious as opposed to an unconscious process. So let me go back to that example of surgery, and particularly since I've had more than one rather serious one, but knock on wood, little sound effect there, uh, nothing that is shortening my lifespan as far as I can tell. I would say um, when you have a surgery coming up, or let me use something much more benign like a major exam, or uh, you are planning to have a huge confrontation with your boyfriend or your uh, wife, uh, and you know that you've been apart for a month and you're going to see them again, and it's going to be time to have that heavy-duty conversation. Suppression is the process of just really striving not to think about it. Uh, as Baba Ramdas would say, uh, who was a guy, friend of Timothy Leary, name was uh, Richard Alpert before he adopted a spiritual name. One of the only people to ever be fired from Harvard University, by the way, where he achieved a full professorship in psychology at the tender age of 28. But he um, talked about, um, he wrote it, his most famous work is a book called Be Here Now. So you could say uh, all of the defense mechanisms, ironically, serve the function of being more capable of being present and alive and vibrant in the moment. So suppressing the knowledge of that frightening surgery you have coming up or of that confrontation or of any of those five kind of standard underlying diff human difficulties uh, is a way to cope with it. Uh, closely related, also conscious, is anticipation. And that is uh, uh, interestingly enough, sort of the opposite of suppression. It's where you'll anticipate the event not enough to cause great distress, but really enough to calm you down. Uh, let's say in the case of an exam, you would you would be thinking, okay, this is what it's going to be like. I've done a hundred exams before. I'm going to make sure I'm well prepared. I'm not going to wait till an hour before the test to study. And uh, by anticipating what the room looks like, what the material is going to be like, what your classmates are going to look like in the room, you are 
preparing yourself, reducing your mental discomfort through the use of anticipation. And finally, and arguably most importantly, is the idea of sublimation. Here again, regardless of the theory of mind, regardless of whether it's Jungian or Freudian or uh, one of the three contemporary models, which would be self-psychology, intersubjectivity, or relational psychoanalysis, all of these models would agree that people use defense mechanisms. And what sublimation uh, means is you're taking the discomfort or the of, of those five things I've repeatedly mentioned, or you're just taking uh, whatever drives you. Um, you know, Freud thought it was sexuality slash love slash attachment. I can make a good argument for that. Jung, uh, Carl Jung made such a helpful contribution in suggesting we're also highly motivated to individuate, to become all that we can be, like Pindar said, to become individuals. Um, and what sublimation means is you're putting that drive and or the unresolved blah, blah, blah issues uh, into productive activity. Um, someone once asked Freud what mental health was, and he said, uh, to love and to work. There's a little known psychoanalyst by the name of Jean Sanville, a woman who uh, added uh, the word play, which to this day, I think is, is a pretty good, those three words are not a bad way to think about what an effective life is, what a mature life is, capability of working, playing, and loving. That latter can be so difficult. Um, one of my great heroes in this field, Donald Winnicott, uh, said something like, uh, it is a joy to be hidden, it is a disaster not to be found. What is he saying there? We are all afraid of being seen by those close to us. Uh, uh, they may find a flaw. They may see something we think is hateful. Um, but right in that phrase, he captures, yeah, there's something to be said about hiding out, but then there's something dark and tragic about never being seen, never being intimate. So the idea of sublimation is... Uh, is channeling your psychic energies, however they're formulated by pain or by very positive things, into ac actions of those three categories, work, love, or play. There's a fellow that wrote a book called Flow that without consciously in intending to is really rather friendly to uh, Buddhist and Taoist conceptions of the world, which is that when you're fully sublimated, to use this language, you lose your ego. You're just completely involved in whatever it is that you're doing, and the ego vanishes from sight. And I, I hope all of you have had that experience. Uh, it could be as benign as watching a really engaging movie, where at the end of it, the lights go on and you're like, where am I again? Who am I again? And that's because you flowed so completely into the experience of the movie 
that you've lost your sense of ego. And uh, that is also a goal, I would say, of people who are involved in uh, so-called extreme sports, uh, rock climbing, or other uh, even much more dangerous activities where they they lose their sense of self uh, in the process of doing the activity. So I've covered the so-called uh, mature defenses, and all this again is in the interest of introducing you as either a practitioner or a potential patient to what you'll be dealing with in um, depth psychotherapy. So let me cover now ones that are neither particularly mature nor primitive, because the primitive defense mechanisms are splitting and projective identification, which I covered in the last podcast, podcast number eight. So here is uh, one of them, uh, isolation. It really means isolation of affect or emotion. Uh, that would be uh, not so good. Like I said, kind of a middle zone, and you're just going to shut down it's an unconscious defense mechanism. Whatever feeling it is that is uh, heinous to you. So maybe the loss of your father, for example, or your mother uh, is just too intolerable to, to cope with. So you just kind of shut it off. That's what isolation is meant. Uh, it, what it is meant by isolation. Um, another one... Uh, would be called displacement. Uh, that's part of what Freud thought, and I'm debating. I still haven't decided what to make the final podcast about, whether to talk about dreams or sum this all up, but uh, this comes to mind because Freud, what he called the dream work, involves displacement, symbolization, and, um, oh, what's the third one? Displacement symbolization, and uh, condensation. That's the third one. Uh, uh, as a little side point here, uh, symbolization means everything you dream about can have a symbolic function to it. So if you dream about your mother, it could be your wife, your co-worker, your girlfriend, your sister, any female figure. Uh, uh, condensation uh, was what I just spoke about, um, uh, that basically the image is condensed into one. So you dream of a dog, but the dog could represent other animals in your life, your guinea pig, the deer that you saw driving down the street the other day, uh, the bear that frightened you when you were backpacking as a teenager, whatever it might be. And displacement, which is also a defense mechanism, is where you take uh, an emotion or any kind of mental experience and you put it onto something else. So uh, kicking the dog, uh, sorry dogs, would be a, a really clean example of the idea of displacement where you're actually angry at your boss and instead you come home and you mistreat your dog. Uh, displacement is actually quite common. It's not the most mature, but it's not the most immature. Uh, it is a huge part of marriage counseling, which happens to be about half of my practice, where people are actually 
displacing uncomfortable emotion they have in themselves and putting it onto the other. Super common in any long-term romantic or intimate relationship because in essence, the boundaries between self and other get blurred because of familiarity. And then there can be a tendency to say, criticize in the other what is actually a problem in you. Um, let us see. Another common uh, is uh, defense mechanism is reaction formation. That's where you actually uh, become the uh, you you exaggerate in an opposite way whatever emotional problem you have. Uh, this is also called a counterphobic reaction. So someone who is frightened of flying or of heights, they could end up pursuing a career as a flight attendant or pilot or navigator um, as an unconscious way to cope with the fear. They actually turn it upside down or uh, someone who will laugh uproariously about a situation that you know is actually very, very uncomfortable to them or elicits an angry feeling in them. That would be an example of reaction formation. A totally different one now would be regression. Um, that's also kind of a long story and it has kind of a bad rap. Uh, right, because it suggests that you're going back to an earlier stage. But let's take sexuality, which uh, Freud, Sigmund Freud, unfortunately, considered that, uh, what did he call it, regression in the service of the ego. I much prefer what Ronald Fairbairn said, which was that sexual activity is the closest thing to a baby's mouth on breast. So penis and vagina, if you will, or any kind of sexual activity is a wonderful uh, repetition of a very primitive uh, form of intimacy. So there's an example there of where regression can kind of get a bad rap. But imagine uh, someone who's a mature person who's in the middle of a nasty argument with someone that they're close with, and they get suddenly passive aggressive, which would also be a form, another defense mechanism where they, they get mean, or they use a a super uh, painful curse word. Um, that could be an example, again, of kind of a moderate level defense mechanism where the anger they feel is so intense or uncomfortable to them that they regress to another means of, of behaving. Uh, whereas when it comes to sexuality, I'd actually like to kind of edit out the word regression because it's really... Uh, the way I like to think about it is sexual encounters is just another form of dialogue. It's just a primitive, physical, wonderful kind of dialogue. Side point, so I kind of have a problem with people that specialize in sex therapy. With all due respect to those who are listening and are specializing in that. Not that you're not doing good for people, but if you work with couples, the most important part of any kind of intimate relationship, friendship, sexual relationship, intimate relationship of any type is 
the capacity to dialogue, to work through disruptions and repairs. And um, if you are able to help a couple with that, their sexual relationship is going to spontaneously improve. Uh, so there's no need to kind of isolate it out, pun intended there, um, as a problem when uh, intimate engagements between people uh, flow in a, in a dialogical kind of way, if there is such a word, um, in, a, in, in an easygoing fashion. Not that there's not going to be arguments or disruptions or, or disagreements or dislikes. There's always going to be those. But ideally, you deal with them in a forthright, authentic fashion where there's two subjects in connection with one another. Another side point is that's the whole idea behind what's called intersubjectivity theory, that we walk around in these quiet worlds of our own private consciousnesses. And what intimacy is about is, is being intersubjective. You take your own subjectivity and you're able to be very open and engaged about it with the other but you have to also be equally capable of showing a high level of empathy of the other. So one of the ideals of mature functioning, I would say, is a capacity to see yourself with honesty and empathy, compassion, and also to do the same thing with the other. So the time is coming to a close now. I hope I've succeeded in introducing you to just this basic idea of the mind's way of defending itself against pain from the inside and the outside. And those ways uh, run the gamut from the more primitive, which is splitting and projective identification. Those are defense mechanisms that are normally used by infants, all the way up to what Anna Freud indicated were the more or most mature ones, which would be repression, suppression, anticipation, humor, and sublimation. Thank you so much for your interest, and I'll look forward to speaking with you again at podcast number 10. This concludes podcast number nine. Thank you so much.